The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. starting on Monday, so I'll be gone for three weeks. We have a great lineup of visiting teachers, so next Wednesday will be Miyoshi Kelly, a well-known teacher here in town. And then uh, the following week will be Alex Haley. Um, uh, and then uh, the next Wednesday will be the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and that week we'll be having uh, professional sand and polyurethane support when we renovated this little building in 2006 and 2007. Um, we put a nice linseed and wax, but not through many people coming this often. So we're going to sand the floors and do the real thing to protect the floors. So we'll close that whole week of Thanksgiving, just so you know. And we finished up on Chacha's book that we've been looking at for a while. I thought tonight I'd share a little bit from some of the topics, teachings of the Buddha we've been studying in our Sutta study group. That meets once a month, and also Sutta just means the discourses. And also some of the talks and themes that I brought up at the most recent residential retreat. A bunch of us, about 35 of us, were on a residential retreat this last weekend. And uh, I let that out of that. And uh, you can always listen to those talks that are given during the residential retreats. They eventually make it up onto the website. But I've been talking about this one of the central teachings in the teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha talks about the goal of practice as nirvana or nirvana. Nirvana is the Sanskrit word. Nirvana is the Pali word. And this is an often misunderstood word. A lot of times, you know, superficially, we just think of it as a kind of heaven. Can't wait till I get to Nirvana or Nirvana. It will be so nice. And it may be nice, but uh, it's really important that even on an intellectual level that we have a sense of what the purpose of practice is because it has a lot to do with what the practice is, and how the mind understands what the problem is. One of the things I've always liked, uh, I started, I worked in business for a few years right after college before I got interested in meditation in the early 80s, and one of the things I observed some of my mentors is, you know, we'd be, I was a management consulting firm, and we'd be sort of trying to figure out something. But then somebody would come in and they just clarify the situation by saying something like, oh, what, is the, what is the problem we're trying to solve? And that's, that's actually relevant, you know. But we can run around as human beings, we can run around quite a bit, we do run around quite a bit, trying to make our life better, but we're not necessarily clear what's the problem 
we're trying to solve. What is the experience of dis-ease or discomfort or suffering or stress that we're addressing? In a way, we're, we arrogantly believe we know what we're doing, but we haven't actually carefully assessed what is the problem that my life is addressing. I mean, everything I'm doing in life, in a way, is addressing some problem. Well, what is the problem my life, my practice, spiritual practice, is addressing? The Buddha would say, uh, and sometimes he'd use very graphic metaphors. One of the things we did for our, the retreat, the residential retreat, is we looked at a particular metaphor, burning. In fact, the word nirvana or nirvana means the going out of a fire. That's exactly what it means. In a very mundane, it's not a spiritual word. It was a very ordinary word at the time of the Buddha. It's like, put out the fire. That was the word nirvana. You know, the word that was about putting out a fire, the fire going out. The extinguishing of the flames of greed, anger, and delusion. So the Buddha picked it up. And fire was really big in India at the time. The Brahmins, the priestly caste, they had a lot of fire ceremonies and rituals. And so the Buddha, just in understanding his own mind, he likened the agitated state of our mind and heart and really seeing like the source of that agitation. It really likened it to um, something on fire. You like the idea of the stickiness of fire, how fire sticks to its fuel, right? If it doesn't stick to its fuel, it doesn't burn. It needs fuel, and it has to stick to that fuel in order to burn. It's not the fuel's problem. You know, the burning is different than the fuel. It's like the wood. Wood is just wood. But under certain circumstances, that wood ignites... And that it can be quite destructive. Yeah, a lot of ways, metaphors, analogies to talk about both the burning, you know, the burning that points to the mind that is on fire, agitated with conditioned patterns, conditioned tendencies to resist, to struggle, to want to be in denial to want to control, to want to get, to want to get rid of. And when we look, it makes a lot of sense to talk about these activities as heating up the mind, or another way, quite more the stickiness, or fire sticking to the fuel, to bind up the mind, or the mind gets bound up, gets entangled with fuel. And what's the fuel? Any object of the mind and body is fuel, right? Because isn't that true? My mind can get tight, upset about, greedy for, agitated around any object of the mind or body, any sensation, any sound, any sight, any smell, any taste, and any thought. We can become neurotic about. I think that's. Everyone agree to that. I mean, <laughs> one of the astounding things is to see, to notice the things our minds and other people's minds get caught up in. You know, relatively trivial things and relatively, you know, from a conventional point of view, important things. 
wanted him to say something positive, so we put it into the positive. Instead of what isn't there, he talked about what is there, to some degree at least. And he came up with these 33 synonyms. The unfashioned, the end, the effluentless. So that, another way that gets translated, the absence of the outflows of the mind. The mind isn't leaking. Like, it doesn't have a trace. It doesn't have leftover business. It's even or effluentless. The true, the beyond, the subtle, the very hard to see, the ageless, permanence, the undecaying, the featureless, the non-differentiation, peace, the deathless, the exquisite, bliss, solace, the exhaustion of craving, the wonderful, the marvelous, the secure, security, the bond. The unafflicted, the passionless, the pure, release, non-attachment, the island, shelter, harbor, refuge, the ultimate. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. A lot of people, you know, when they hear the bottom and kind of get a sense of the practice, they, they get this false sense that you know, life's really messy, the Buddha taught that life is really messy, and we're trying to get to this really even plane place, you know, a balanced place in the mind, where you resign yourself to the messiness and the limitations of life, and at least we're not acting out of frustration with it. But that's not exquisite, or bliss, or peace, or safety, or refuge, or any number of these terms that you use. So this freedom isn't something flat and gray. That's just what the mind is making up. Because it's right, and it's right because it's new. Whenever we go to new territory, I mean, you just go visit another country and you're going to be afraid, or go out on a date with someone you don't know and you're going to be afraid. So in the practice, we're really opening, entering a new space. It's not the way we're used to relating to our experience is through the lens of greed, anger, and delusion. You may not think that, but if you start to look carefully, you'll see that in subtle ways that are we're not normally aware of, the mind is living through greed, anger, and delusion all the time. It's misperceiving because the mind is distorted by distractedness, by subtle expressions of aversion, like subtle fear, subtle irritation, subtle impatience, and subtle flavors of greed. Wanting this, wanting that, leaning into wanting something to happen, hoping something will unfold in a particular way. And all of these burnings, as the Buddha might say, distort the mind so that it isn't even aware that the mind's on fire. This is the real tragedy is that just because we don't think we're suffering, doesn't mean we're not suffering. I mean, one of the expressions of suffering is to be unaware of it, and certainly to be unaware of what it is, in a clear way. Buddha said this very explicitly, it's the not understanding the experience of the mind being bound up that is the cause for the mind being bound up over and over again. It's because we don't see it. And we don't see it because we're not, we have trained the mind to look 
in a direct, clear way. We're too busy running, reacting to the experience of being agitated, uneasy, to see clearly what's going on. Here's another passage from the Buddha. There are forms cognizable by the eye, agreeable, enticing. If a practitioner relishes them, welcomes them, remains fastened to them, then one's consciousness is dependent on them, is sustained by them, like the flame is on the fuel. With sustenance and clinging, the practitioner is not totally unbound. But if one does not relish them, welcome them, or remain fastened to them, then one's consciousness is not dependent on them, is not sustained by them. Without sustenance and clinging, the, the practitioner is totally unbound. And that's the same with all the sense games. We talk about the eye, but the passage goes on to talk about hearing, seeing, touching, smelling, tasting, and thinking. So all these sense games, including thinking, it's just a matter if the mind is dependent on the sense experience, or independent, you could say. And that's something we can look at any time. Like you might have pain in your body right now, but the relevant question is, how is the mind related to that pain in the body? Is there some identity that the mind is creating that's dependent on the pain? Like, I'm the person who hates this pain in my knee. I'm the person who feels somewhat betrayed by the fact that my knee hurts. I'm the one, the person who wants to go home so I can get on my lazy boy and not feel this pain in my knee. But all those identities, that, the mind clinging, holding, repeating, that, those are the flanks. Now sometimes the flanks aren't like huge. It's just a slow burn. It's a little bit of uneasiness, a little bit of restlessness, always wanting to go on to the next thing. One of the things that Buddha teaches is that movement masks dukkha. Dukkha is the word for stress or this worry that I'm talking about. So by just staying busy, have you ever noticed ourselves? Like, I see this a lot in my own behavior. You know, I'll do this, then I'll stop doing that, I'll do something else. We kind of flit about because we're a little bit uneasy and we just keep busy. And if we keep busy moving about, we don't notice this underlying uneasiness of the heart, of the body, of the mind. So what would it mean to stay put a little bit? Just sit. This is why the ritual of sitting meditation often involves being relatively still, where we're resolving for a period of time, half an hour or whatever, 45 minutes, not to move the body much at all. So that then that not moving shows up how distracted we've been by staying in motion, doing one thing after another, and not really noticing what it is like to have a mind or a body. Oh, this is what it's like to have a mind. Because the movement of the mind really stands out when we're not moving about doing a bunch of different things, interacting with different experiences. And we really see how the mind is always hungry for more fuel whether it's like looking at something or thinking something or hearing something scratching, moving 
And in many of these metaphors, this analogy really starts to make sense. And this can get really subtle. One of my favorite, somewhat funny passages is uh, an interaction between this, uh, one of the Buddhist chief disciples, Sariputta, and another very well-known monk from the time of the Buddha, uh, Aruruddha, who was a cousin of the Buddha and a very good monk, accomplished monk, even at this time, before he was fully away, he was well on his way. And uh, Venerable Anuruddha, the Buddha's cousin, went to see Venerable Sariputta, this chief disciple of the Buddha, for some instruction. And he greeted him. And after exchange of friendly greetings, he sat down to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to Venerable Sariputta, his teacher, by means of the divine eye, known as psychic abilities. By means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing what is ordinary, I see the thousand-fold cosmos. My energy is aroused and unsluggish. My mind is established and unshaken. My body is calm and unaroused. My mind is concentrated into singleness. And yet my mind is not released from the outflows through lack of clinging. So basically saying, you know, I really got my act together in what we would probably consider a superhuman way. You know, really beautiful concentration, really balanced, powerful concentration, evenness of mind. And yet I'm noticing that my mind is flowing on, right? There's an outflow, and it's not pretty. And so what do you think this teacher is going to say to him? My friend, when the thoughts, the thought occurs to you by means of the divine eye purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos, that is related to your conceit. When the thought occurs to you, my energy is aroused and unsluggish, my mindfulness is, is established and unshaken, my body is calm and unperturbed, my mind is concentrated into singleness, that is related to your restlessness. When the mind, when the thought occurs to you, and yet my mind is not released from the outflows through lack of clinging, that is related to your anxiety or your worry. Okay? So it's just pointing out that those thoughts themselves can be seen. When your mind is interested in what you've accomplished, we call that conceit being known. This is the activity of conceit, taking the mind personally, the activity of the mind, the qualities of the mind personally. It's not to say there aren't qualities of the mind, but we don't need to personalize them. And then sort of this great list of his accomplishments is really, according to Sorry Put that just an expression of your restlessness, like feeling the need to tell me so much. Right? That's that is called restlessness. Your mind feels compelled to talk. We've had that conversation like this where the person just goes on and along, we're that person, you know. I'm often that person. That's why I do this for a living. <laughs> and then the last one that makes a lot of sense is the worry. Like, how many times have we been worried about our practice? Like, I'm sitting and yet nothing's happening. But we fail to notice that that thought itself is just worry 
being known, just anxiety being known. We're anxious about the fact that we think nothing's happening, but that can be known. And that's why I unfortunately didn't stop there. He told him what he might do with his practice. He said, it would be well if abandoning these three qualities, conceit, restlessness, and um, worry or anxiety, abandoning these qualities, you directed your mind to the deathless element. So this, because Anuruddha was quite accomplished, as you can tell from his description of his practice, his mind was really balanced and powerful and even saw a lot of mindfulness was, he said, deeply established. You just assumed that he was not lying. So it was really all, sorry, that his teacher was telling him is you need to change your perspective. So right now, we did a little of this even at the beginning of the sit, and I suggested to all of us that we just notice what can we do with the mind to support the perception of safety. Because normally, what do we do? The mind's looking at all the reasons we should feel unsafe. I don't know all these people. You know, people dress up more than I do, or I overdress, or you know, everybody else seems so still. Like I over there, so still.
the sound of my voice, the sound of the blower, the sound of people moving, that can momentarily obscure the perception of silence. But it can't actually stain it or get rid of it. The silence, the background, is always there. But we don't attend to it. It's not our habit, is it? So whether you use space or silence or the deathless or any of these other synonyms for the essential inherent peace, the key is to begin to intuit it. Because if we don't intuit it, we're not going to be interested in it. And if we're not interested in it, we're not going to cultivate the understanding of it. If we don't cultivate the understanding of it, our mind will remain dependent on the objects of our experience. And its tendency, because of our conditioning, is to burn, right? To like the different objects or hate them. In one way or another, to have an agitated relationship with what we're seeing, what we're hearing, what we're thinking, what we're touching, what we're smelling and tasting. You know, all the different ways we know experience, we know the objects of experience, we get agitated with. But we can train the mind to go to the deathlessness. Ajahn's Venerable uh, Sariputta suggests Anuruddha, and as these stories often go, go in the discourses and the suttas, in a very short time, Anuruddha became one of the enlightened ones, one of the fully awake ones. Uh, he was a very well-known teacher himself uh, at the time of the Buddha. So I thought uh, for the next ten minutes or so I'd share a meditation on emptiness. This is a wonderful meditation that comes out of one of the discourses the Buddha gave, translated, the title is translated as The Lesser Discourse on Emptiness. And this is more of a thinking meditation or contemplation. We're using the thinking mind, the imagination, to get a sense of what is sort of, uh, I know say a moment ago, the background of space or emptiness or peace. Project Punadama was coming down in the middle of December, comes down and teaches once a year. He runs, uh, is the abbot of a small hermitage, forest hermitage, just across the Minnesota border on the way to Thunder Bay. A place where people, anybody here, can go and practice if you want. They have about five cabins for lay people to go and practice and get instruction from Ajahn. But keep it in mind, if you're free, we'll be teaching, I think it's possibly Friday the 13th of December, or maybe the 12th of December, and then doing a day-long program on that Saturday. And, uh, so he gives a, a version of this talk to Buddha gave, and it's really a practice, it's really a radical practice of simplifying the mind through the process of selective not attention. So normally, you know, in meditation practice and mindfulness practice, it's all about including everything that's arising in our field of experience. So this practice, using our imagination and thought, we're going to selectively remove objects from our perception and just attend to what's left. That's really the work that we're going to do after the next practice. Don't worry about the terminology too much. Just do the best you can. So, Sydney, let's begin with our eyes open. And the first 
part of the contemplation is called contemplating the village. <clears throat> We're just bringing this ordinary perception to mind, day-to-day awareness. And what are we aware of? We're aware of this room, right by the walls, and the ceiling and floor. We're, of course, aware of all the people here in the room. There's the great diversity of human beings in the room, and the Christian to the other furniture articles in the room. And of course, through the imagination, we know that there's a road out there, 27th Avenue, and in front of me is 26th Street, and there are probably cars, trees, and grass, and maybe some ice crystals left in the snow, plants, different kinds, and all kinds of activity of people, maybe the squirrels and birds are still doing their thing. It's the sky. If we go up further, of course, they're building all kinds of different buildings, houses, and big buildings downtown. Freeways. There's the river, hills, and valleys. So this great earth filled with humans and human structures and natural structures or natural aspects of the environment. For just a minute, just imagine the world as it actually is, the ordinary day-to-day experience. the 
landscape, the hills and valleys, gorge, the river flowing, the lakes, the mountains, the sky. Just imagining the great earth, this great sphere, sensing how it takes up space. The three of any living beings, living plants. Just noticing how simple this is. Green earth. In a real sense, of the space that the earth is taking up. And then the next contemplation, moving into the formless realms, we practice selectively removing the earth. So all that remains is the space that the earth is taking up. And we're contemplating that space, just perceiving the sense of space that previously the earth was taking up. And just notice how peaceful this perception of space is. Big, boundless, sensitive space. It's called neither 
perception or non-perception. Don't get confused by the title. As best you can, just remove the sense of nothingness. Free the mind of the perception or the sense of nothingness, the concept of nothingness. Just abide with what's left. no sense of one perceiving or something to be perceived. Instead, 
or replace it with an interest in the mind itself. Because it's the mind is really at the center of everything. So can we be a human being with duties and responsibilities to whatever degree you know, we have those duties and responsibilities that primarily sustain an awareness of the mind as we're living a life? And things like mindfulness of breathing and many of the other techniques that we teach here, the Buddha teaches, are just skillful means to sustain present moment awareness. Which is really another way of saying being aware of the mind. Because the present moment is the experience of the mind. This is the experience of the mind. We think, well, no, no, this is the experience of coming around. But this is the experience of seeing people that come around. This is the experience of feeling sensations in my body. That all of this is being known where? Being known in the mind. This is the experience of the mind. But we misunderstand it and we externalize it. We presume this is what it's like to be in a room and have a body and to be thinking, have a brain that's thinking. But it's just the experience of the mind. And we can cultivate that perception and still be a functional human being and not weird. It's possible. <laughs> but it's not easy because it's uh, not the habit. The habit of the mind, because of our cultural conditioning, is to get externalized and become basically obsessed and dependent on sense experiences. And it loses its interest in and its deepening understanding of the mind. And it's an understanding of the mind that will teach us that refuge and emptiness. And that understanding emptiness, the emptiness of the mind's reactivity, is what allows us to be a really functional human being, like a saint, someone who is engaged, but not engaging with greed, anger, and delusion. So what are they engaging with? Love. And that's what's love, but there's no greed, anger, delusion in the mind. That's a good question. Other thoughts? Yeah. Jeff. Uh, I was thinking about a lot of things when you were talking, and something you mentioned about, um, uh, about ignorance being a cause of suffering. Um, this feeling really uh, very, as you would say, entangled my thoughts this evening when I came. And, um, Partly because I have asthma, and I spent most of October really sick, not being able to go to work. And tonight, as I was breathing, I, um, for the first time in probably four weeks, I was able to sit without starting to cough. And I found myself getting really uh, just, I, I felt that feeling of having to cough, and I got really, really mad. I got really mad, and I realized, um, I realized how um, attached I am to breathing. <laughs> and, um, I mean, not in a way everybody is, is to live, but in a, in a way that um, yeah, I, I kind of wasn't sitting as much as usual just because I, I thought, well, I can't breathe. So sort of fell out of my usual cycle. But the other part of what you were saying, and I, I, you know, some other groups that 
I've been coming to. We've been talking a lot about knowing what we don't know. And uh, I find that the more I practice, the more I dispel ignorance about where I'm really heavily connected or greedy about something. And as I do that, as I dispel the ignorance, I find myself catching myself in moments thinking, oh, I'm doing it again. Feeling frustrated about getting angry. I was talking with a friend, Scotty, and we were actually sitting below you during the Buddhist studies. I should be here at places. Maybe now it's good that you know that the talk was, it was, it was, it was uh, valuable for us. But anyway, I was saying how when I catch myself in those moments, I I think to myself, oh, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to be mindful before I get to the point of being angry. Or I'm going to be mindful before I get to the point of um, reacting unskillfully, whatever that might be. And Scotty said to me, she's been practicing when she does get to the point of reacting with anger, or when she does catch herself in greed, how she has made a plan, a five-year plan, <laughs> to not react with judgment against herself, and to not react with disappointment that she did it again, that she messed up again. And it was a real big re- realization to me, because um, I realized tonight how the more I dispel the ignorance and see where I'm really heavily connected, the more disappointed and angry I get at myself which is maybe part of the process, but... Um, and you see how that's connected to the fire burning? Yes. Because it's like, person, like that's the stickiness is, so how does the fire start? Well, objects of experience are just coming and going, but the mind personalizes it. Yeah. So if we're not behaving, like not having a good sit, that's one thing. But if the mind personalizes, then the mind starts to get sticky with the experience of not having a good sit. And then it catches on fire and it starts to burn. And that's what Scotty was saying, like that, if you didn't hear Jeff's comment, that she has the five-year plan that not to judge herself, so to be able to have a bad sit without getting on fire. That would be a real step in the right direction. I, I don't know if you have more to say here. No, that was it. I just, it was a realization for me exactly in the, the, the way you're saying, because it's going to happen. And another person I know after a sit said, I just can't stop my thoughts. And I, I thought, um, that's not realistic because it's, it's against the nature of a mind to expect it not to think. Just like it's against my nature as a human to think that I'm never going to mess up again. That it was just an important revelation for me. One of the shadows, not just in Buddhism, but in spiritual life generally, is this idea of perfection. And that's really, I think, people did hear Jeff, this comments really are about this deepening understanding that the path is not about perfection. Or it's not about perfection in the sense of controlling our personality so we don't mess up anymore. It's really about understanding that it was free, it is free, it will be free, that in a being, it could be who is limited or is messing up. There's
there's freedom. Uh, that doesn't, there's sort of two things. It's true on this conventional level, some of our actions of body and mind, body, speech, and mind, are unskillful and have unskillful consequences. Clearly, that's true, right? Life has taught us that. But what do we do with that lawful, karmic side of life? If we personalize it, then we personally create suffering right then and there. There is this lawfulness of cause and effect. How we behave matters. If we personalize it, we create suffering. So we're doing two things. On a conventional level, we're learning how it works so that we can be more skillful and less unskillful. On a deeper level, we're learning to be, we're learning that this is all, all already free. Right? We could be in the struggle of our life, dying, let's say something really provocative, drowning, right? We're in a big ocean, drowning. But there's a way in that, you know, and we're going to do the best we can to swim to the shore or whatever we're going to do to take care of ourselves. But all the while, the mind could be free of free anger and delusion. It could be really intuiting the peace, the empty, this moment being empty of self-centered drama. Do we have to have self-centered drama just because the body is drowning? Does the mind have to create the experience that this is a personal problem? It doesn't. It doesn't, first of all, it certainly doesn't help the drowning person in any way to be thinking that I don't want this to happen, for example, or, you know, Sure, it would be more dramatic than that. <laughs> Cursing God, or you know, who knows what, the person who throw, threw us out of the boat, or whatever. But just to use that dramatic example, like, like, well, why not? Why couldn't the body and mind be doing whatever it could do to survive, and at the same time, in no way creating the experience of personal suffering? Why not? And so, now, we don't have to start with that experience. We can start with ordinary experiences like being in a conversation with somebody and we're ready for it to be over, but it's not over yet, you know? <laughs> and so there's just that uneasiness that's there. And the question is, what are we going to do? Are we going to act out our impatience and become the person who's upset or impatient or can we be peaceful and still do our best to end the conversation because we have other things that we be doing? We don't have to suffer because life is difficult. And we don't have to suffer because life is good and it's going to change. That's what the Buddha says, is that life is what it is. There is a human being, there is this process of cause and effect, but there doesn't need to be suffering. Suffering is optional. And that's really the insight that he pointed to with these teachings. Well, have a good month, everyone. Uh, we have to end it here, so let's just take a few seconds and let's go the words time for a breath together. <laughs>
busy lives and their particular circumstances. And now we're the recipients of this stream of wisdom that has been passed on generation by generation. And it's our turn to do the best we can in our lives with all our limitations become causes for real peace, real wisdom, and compassion. May this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.